Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm Lee Carlo, and I'm joined only today by Jeremy Fisk. Jeremy, we are sans Chapin today. Finally. Uh, I have to be honest. I Yeah, but I don't know why he couldn't make it. He gave gave his reasons. I can read you, read the text to our audience. I mean, he, so he said, guys, I'm not going to be able to do the pod. I just had a baby girl, my firstborn. Her name is Ridley after the great Ridley Scott. Also, the air quality in Portland is unbreathable, literally the worst in the world. There's also a pandemic. So, so why I, couldn't you make know. it? So, I yeah, I don't know. But we're committed. We're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are going to discuss the film entitled I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is written for the screen and directed by Charlie Kaufman. And what we're thinking about doing with Chapin on this podcast, what? quite frankly. If he's not going to show up, right. do we have a choice? I mean... <laughs> So uh, the movie stars Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley. It also uh, has appearances from Tony Collette and David Thewlis, and it is streaming on Netflix for all to see. Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming in. We have a real connection, a rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. I'm visiting Jake's parents for the first time. He hasn't been my boyfriend for very long. They really are looking forward to meeting you. I think you're ending things. Hello? We're here. Oh, hi. It's all wet. Here they come. Jeff has told us so much about you. He's told me so much about both of you, too. And you came anyway. (laughs) Jake tells me you're studying quantum psychics. Physics. Really? But there's just something profoundly wrong here. Are you okay? Yeah. I think you're ending I am so glad Jake has found someone. Soon this will all be a distant memory. Who's this? It's me. No, it was me. I tell you, I would misplace my own head if it wasn't screwed onto my own head. I feel like I was seeing them as they were. Seeing them as they will be. Seeing them after they're gone. I'm thinking of ending. stay here. Excuse me? You don't have to go. I don't have to go where? Forward. People like to think of themselves as points moving through time. But I think it's the opposite. We're stationary. And time passes through us. (laughs) Blowing like cold wind. Maybe this is how it was always going to end. And this week's episode is brought to you by Red Apple Cigarettes. Jeremy, I don't know about you, but I've never been a smoker. That is, I never was until I started buying Red Apples. And look, things are really stressful these days between COVID-19, civil unrest, upcoming elections. The list goes on and nothing takes the edge off like a drag of a Red Apple. Uh, And I know there's a lot of fake news about how cigarettes are bad for you and they're addictive, but I can stop anytime I want. The fact of the matter is, I just don't want to. Why would would you want to? 
No, with red, red apple apples. cigarettes are just that good. Uh, since 1862, red apple cigarettes have been offering better drag, more flavor, less throat burn. That's the red apple way. And of course, we're, we're joking, but if a real cigarette company wants to sponsor this podcast, I will take up smoking. <laughs> well, for sure. Yeah. I think how much money uh, they give us. <laughs> I can't imagine any reason I, all that three would of go us badly. Will. And our children. We'll smoke on the, on the podcast. Um, all right. So, Jeremy, I mentioned to you that I read uh, the book that this movie is based on. It was written by Ian Reed. Um, I also mentioned that I do not want to, or at least want to try to avoid spending this whole podcast directly comparing the movie to the book, and I think more importantly, importantly comparing my interpretation between the book and the movie. Um, but the more I have thought about it, the more I'm realizing that that's probably going to be difficult, especially without spoiling it. Um, as much as I hate to say, say this, I think it's probably best for us to recommend that everybody watches this movie before listening to this episode, but... Before they turn us off, I think we can hear a little bit from you. Um, sure. You haven't read the book. I, and I saw the movie, uh, and I still don't know if I can spoil it. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. So <laughs> we'll start there. But I'm hoping that what you have to say uh, will help people who don't have the book as a reference point. Because really, if like you said, if you haven't read the book, there is really no way to analyze this movie's narrative. Uh, so you end up with a sort of different objective. Right. And he's... Um, he, how you approach it too is entirely different because totally differently. Yep. I approached it as a Kaufman fan, as a movie fan. So I came in from that direction. Uh, you probably would do the same, but you read the book. So you could, you had that perspective of it. I had another piece. So yeah. I'm trying and to piece this together based on my past experiences with this filmmaker, this writer. Okay. So you started to kind of get at what I'm, what I'm thinking. Cause I'm really curious. Like, I'm curious how you watched this movie. How were you processing information? You know, where what did you find yourself thinking about? Which plot points were resonating? And if you obviously you said it'd be difficult to spoil anyway, but like I just couldn't. It was hard for me to imagine watching this movie without the frame of reference that I had. It was hard. I'll tell you for a fact. It was very <laughs> very difficult. Um, so you know me. I'm like a kind of a structure guy, and I think Kaufman is unbelievably good at structure especially for movies like adaptation and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and what he does is he's he's obviously sort of a meta filmmaker or meta writer and he takes what we know and turns it on his on its head but at least he has a grounding point and you can sort of wrap your mind around the world that the that he creates and why the rules that he establishes establishes where as this movie he doesn't do that so you have to sort of grasp at what you can and your mind does do that and just naturally tries to find anchor points to say oh the movie's about this or the movie's about that or you know, I understand this sort of philosophical whimsy, or I, uh, okay, then they've talked a lot about aging. They've, the movie, you know, deals with it, that. And then we sort of, most of the movies that we review on this podcast, I try not to read any reviews. I try not to do any, uh, you know, I want, I want my opinion based, basically I want my opinion to come out on this podcast, if for nothing else, this podcast is a record of how I felt about movies. 
mm-hmm. even if nobody else that, listens that's to all it. it is it's really that's all it liter- is for yeah. all of us is it's a record <laughs> of how we felt about movies so in you know 10 years when in, i don't even remember if i've seen this movie i can pull this podcast up and be like oh okay so that's how i felt about it except for i'll pull this podcast up and have no fucking clue what i'm talking about because this movie doesn't have any serious anchor points and and on the surface, it's about a road trip between a girlfriend and a boyfriend in a new relationship going to see the boyfriend's parents. But there is just so much dialogue. I mean, I think there's 20 minutes at the beginning of them just sort of having musings on life, on movies, on art, on whatever sort of stream of consciousness it felt like was in Kaufman's mind. And again, I don't know what where Kaufman starts and the book ends and um yeah, it's it's tough to it's tough to sort of say what this movie is entirely about and because of that it's hard to I found it hard to enjoy this film. I had I had such a hard time being like this is where I am with this film and I I I can at least see that perspective or I can see that perspective. I'm even trying to define it, which I, you know, I normally don't like to do with movies. Like what genre is it? I'm like, who cares? Even, even with this, like, well, I I found myself saying, well, it's sort of like a philosophical horror movie. Yeah. And it's even difficult to, it's even difficult to admire Kaufman for the things that we love about him, which is first and foremost, a writer, um, He's also he's directed three films, or he he directed uh, Synecdoche, New York, in two thousand eight. He co-directed uh, a movie entirely with puppets called uh, Anomalisa, which I, I don't know if I you've never seen. seen. No, I saw it. It's it's interesting. It's Kaufman esque, and then this. So he's had three movies that he's directed, but we know him best for his his scripts, um, being John Malkovich adaptation. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, some of which are our favorites and we talk about all the time. But watching this movie, it you know, it's it's leaving. You feel like maybe it's one of those movies that you didn't necessarily enjoy, but you admire what the filmmaker's doing to an extent. But I was even questioning that. I was saying, like, I admire Charlie Kaufman quite a bit. I think he's a really smart writer. He, he not necessarily here, but he's one of the best at structure and taking things that are so unique that no one would ever imagine would be successful and structuring it into a well-rounded story. And I found a lot of that to be absent. Now, like I said, I'm going to try to avoid this for a lot of this podcast, but I had the perspective of reading this book. And in doing so, uh, I, I was able to pinpoint things throughout this movie that I thought were really interesting. And with that reference, really well done. But there's a caveat to that, and I'm going to try to cover that without spoiling it. But before I get to that, certain things like these musings that you're talking about, so much screen time dedicated to the the recitation of poetry and critical reviews of Cassavetti's films and, and like all of these things that just somewhere deep in this movie mean something, I'm sure. I took them a little more face value as trying to blur the line between who is who in this movie and 
that I felt like was intentional. Then you have things like the phone calls that Jesse Buckley's character keeps getting. Uh, you have uh, quick little pieces where she points out the brand new swing set in front of an abandoned house. These pieces worked for me throughout the movie because I was putting the pieces together to, and I was really excited to see how Kaufman was going to basically visualize the ending of this book. And I was so disappointed because he never gave us the ending he was moving towards. Right, he went I, way more abstract. Can I ask you something as somebody who read the book? Did the book have a satisfying ending to you? So it was, yeah, it was uh, it was satisfying and it was interesting and, you, and, and it was well placed because the pieces were kind of building towards it so it wasn't like a total shock Mm -hmm. um you you could you could uncover it i didn't love this book i mean i thought it was an interesting read it's pretty short um but you made it through so something was sure and and structurally it's it's more it's more interest it, it works better than this movie which doesn't really seem to bother a whole lot with structure uh but the ending of this movie is so abstract and he basically took the mystery of what we what we were watching, put it on pause and started playing another mystery, which we had no reference for. And that was so frustrating. And I can mad I can't even imagine I, I the ending was so frustrating for me for that reason. I don't know if it, the ending was just frustrating because you were frustrated the whole time. Yeah, I, I was frustrated the whole time. It's one of those movies where anything is possible. So nothing really matters. What, why do I care what their, like their opinions and their feelings or on art and culture and uh, their high school experiences and popular, like all this stuff that he brings, he brings in all this stuff, which clearly he has a lot to say about and a lot of insecurities with, which is understandable. There are a lot of universal insecurities, but, oh, but, and that's also classic Kaufman. Right. Like we saw that but if not, literally portrayed on screen. But if adaptation. one second, somebody can, you know, if time and space and, age and and all these things don't matter at all and we never explain even a little bit i don't need perfect explanation of all this stuff i just need some sort of rhyme or reason why nobody's reacting to it or if nothing is it really happening is it all a dream is it like if nothing matters then why does why am i taking anything he has to say here seriously and that's the frustrating part yeah now i'm gonna I'm going to spoil essentially the book because the movie doesn't end the same way. There's some hints that I think are in here in this in this movie, and we can talk about them without really spoiling too much. In fact, I don't know that this movie is entirely a movie of spoilers. I, I think it— I don't know you can spoil it, this movie. Please do. because. And what I was going to say, and the reason I, I decided to look up other reviews and sort of listen to some podcasts on it is because I wanted to make sure I wasn't— going crazy that i wasn't i didn't entirely miss something i mean i know i'm not the smartest guy in the world but i'm usually pretty good when it comes to you know films um but i felt i i literally felt after i finished it that i that i missed something that i just i it something went over my head that i was like somewhat embarrassed about and i was like did i but Apparently, I didn't. I'm not the only one struggling with this. Yeah, I, I can totally understand that. I, I want to read. So this was a little excerpt from a, a review that I read. And I, and it's this is how I felt. And I'll read this, and then I'll, I'll spoil kind of what happens in the book and explain why a lot of this movie did work at moments. 
So Matt Singer um, of Screen Crush wrote, the best way I can think to describe the experience of actually watching I'm Thinking of Ending Things is to imagine you've been asked to assemble a complicated piece of furniture without the instruction manual. All of the pieces are there, and you see how some of those individual parts connect and work together. You admire the obvious intelligence and care that went into crafting those pieces, but the path to a coherent whole is not entirely clear and often deeply frustrating. Yeah, and, I think that's and, a good explanation. And instead of ending up with, uh, you know, a chair that you thought you were getting, it, you, you know, you, <laughs> yeah. you end up with a blender. Right. <laughs> and I think that review works, especially for me, because of those pieces that he's talking about. And there's a lot throughout this movie. And they're similar to the pieces that are uncovered in the book. And the way that I interpreted the ending, and I know that there is some ambiguity there, but... It, it turns out at the end of this book, you learn that uh, the character of Lucy, who is unnamed in the book, but mm-hmm. is named Lucy in this movie, played by Jesse Buckley. Does her name change in the, the movie? It's like Lucy. So they Lucia. call her Lucy and Lucilla, but a lot of things change. You see her right. outfit change. You see the actor playing her at one point change. Several times, and, yeah. And what I interpreted happening is Lucy is, in fact, Jake. And Jake is, in fact, this janitor that we see throughout the film. So it's all about a memory or a distorted memory or uh, trying, you know, a missed opportunity. And we see a lot of clues to that. We see the way that they talk over each other, that they finish each other's sentences, cluing us into that maybe these are the same characters. The most obvious clue, which is also in the book, is her looking at the picture of Jake as a young person. And she says, no, that's me. Uh, the constant aging and unaging of, of Jake's parents, played by Tony Collette and David Thewlis. Uh, there's just a lot of um, manipulating manipulation of time in this movie. And I mentioned the swing set, the new swing set in front of the old house, maybe two different time periods blending into one. All of these clues were so cool to watch if this movie was going the narrative direction that I expected it to. Instead, this movie transitions into a ballet, followed by an animated pig, followed by a reenactment of A Beautiful Mind, and concluding with a musical number from Oklahoma. (laughs) Now, the only piece in there that has any semblance of what I interpreted from the book is that maybe the reenactment of A Beautiful Mind was Kaufman's way of of cluing us in or or revealing the schizophrenic nature of his character. That's the only thing in there. Everything else was so abstract and unusual. I had no idea what was going on. And there was just so many of the moments in this movie where I was like, God, this just isn't working. And then there's other moments I'm like, this is the best movie of the year. But then that end came and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? What? I don't... I mean, I that, can't, your explanation right there helped me. I mean, that helps a little bit for me to it, look back right, and Right, but say, that's not what the movie is. Like, I can't live in Kaufman's head. You don't, I don't think you want it, to be honest. Well, we did a little bit in Adaptation, which is such a fucking amazing movie. But, like, with this movie, I can't, I can't know what he's thinking. So I don't know where how he's connecting these dots, and he doesn't let us know. I mean, if he could have made that, and it doesn't have to be obvious, but if he could have made that, work in the end i think totally that that would be that, brilliant and that would that have been bit with a beautiful mind what was the, the bit, bit with, with the a beautiful, beautiful mind so the speech that he gives uh when he says i'm only here because of you at the end when they're in the really bad old people makeup yeah 
Yeah, yeah. That is that is verbatim, verbatim, word for word, the end of A Beautiful Mind. Go back and watch the scene at the end of A Beautiful Mind. Uh, uh, John Nash, Russell Crowe, is accepting his award, and he's basically thanking everybody. Then he starts talking directly to Jennifer Connelly and says, you are the reason I am. I'm only here now because of you. Mm. The whole speech is verbatim from A Beautiful Mind. I'm like, this is so weird. Charlie Kaufman and maybe Tarantino are the only two people who could pull something like this off. I don't know that he pulls it off, yeah. but but it's there. There's a piece of it there, like you said, that like, God, like if he decided that the way he's going to reveal this schizophrenic twist reveal of this character is by referencing directly another movie about a schizophrenic character, and he can tie the pieces together with that. That's brilliant, but it doesn't work. It's surrounded by too much other weird stuff that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and I mean, there's it's something just there. really frustrating. You explaining that to me tells me what could have been, and it's almost even more frustrating now because that's, <laughs> I'm sure. that's really kind of brilliant. And I didn't put those pieces together, obviously, and I think most people won't. And I, I want to tell yeah, people, people that this is a tough watch to sit for the two hours. And I, I, I don't know if I can recommend anyone doing it, but with, if he could have figured out a, a way to, to solidify that, it certainly would have been worth it. And it would have been one of the most fascinating films I've ever seen. Yeah. Now I wonder, and we know a little bit about Kaufman and just kind of, we've mentioned it, his insecurities, it's it's portrayed right in front of us an adaptation he isn't shy about it and even in interviews he's talked about how like conversations you see in that movie are very close to real conversations he's had uh he was really struggling uh adapting the novel of uh the orchid thief and ended up basically writing himself into it because he couldn't figure out a way to do it and this is how there was no narrative and all this stuff and all these insecurities you see and Nicolas cage is so good in that movie so we know that about him and you're watching this movie like Kaufman just strikes me as someone who has just so, like, he's a very, clearly a very smart guy, but just has so many thoughts in his head. He has, like, literally, he, he's unable to regurgitate them in any structured way in this movie. So it just yeah. all comes out like vomit. Like, <laughs> and I'm wondering if that just clouds anything he was really trying to do from a movie perspective here. It is interesting to compare his other work. I'm like sitting here smiling, thinking about adaptation and his character and yeah. how he has to write himself into it, and then the, that that gets made into the movie, and and, and then and he hates himself for doing, and he it. hates himself for doing it, and adds violence and you know sex and all the stuff at yep. the end. He says he'd never do. I mean, it's just so brilliant, and but you as an audience member can can grasp that it's clever. He goes into very you know interesting quirky stuff um nuanced stuff very similar stuff that he does here like um with the way characters relate to each other those little moments um the the you know the regrets of of your life the wondering if this is it or if this is the right person like all that stuff he goes into an adaptation and of course even more in eternal sunshine you know, as far as the relationships go. But like you said, it's it's sort of vomited out there and we're just left to try to to piece yeah. back together his vomit into his ham sandwich and we never get that. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And like the the irony is that 
the orchid thief is a, is kind of a non-narrative piece and he figures out a way to structure it into a narrative movie and it's the opposite here i'm thinking of ending things the book by ian reed is a narrative it has structure it it's non-linear um we actually in the book you don't see the old janitor really until the end but throughout the book uh, you have an investigation of a of a dead body, which turns out to be a suicide. And we see that at the end of this movie. Turns out it's that old man. So there is a, there is a structured story playing out in this book. And he goes the opposite direction. He takes the structure away and makes this into sort of a philosophical musing of his regrets, his feelings on the world. Like, is it his, is this his, you know, uh, look back on aging or something. I don't know. Like it's 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 a very tricky think... thing to interpret, and I don't like that I had to watch a movie and try to interpret interpret Charlie Kaufman's mind, not interpret his movie. Like uh, I can't believe we bring this bring it back to this movie so often, but we we struggle with interpreting Annihilation, right? We're not sure what uh, what Alex Garland was trying to say with the end of his movie. I'm struggling. This movie feels like we're left to interpret everything that Kaufman feels like is wrong with him. Do you think that one of the big problems is that um, Jesse Buckley's character is the surrogate because her yeah he's her gender like it's hard it's hard for her because she's the woman and you're sort of you you're empathizing with her in this relationship with this man but then to for you to find out or realize or maybe never realize until you're on the podcast that um this woman who's having this tough relationship with this man is actually this old janitor like yeah if it was if it if it was jake's perspective i think maybe that'd be easier to reach into See, I think the reason that doesn't bother me is because throughout this entire movie, I'm watching this from the perspective of Jake and Jesse Buckley's character being one and the same. See, I, I'm not. And you didn't have that luxury. Yeah. So, again, something else that my perspective helped throughout the first two-thirds of this movie. Um, I think this is an obvious question. I, I think the answer is obvious, rather. Um, Kaufman... Kaufman's best work is when someone else interprets it as a director. I don't know that you can argue. I mean, I've only seen Synecdoche, New York once. I'd love to revisit um, that, but yeah. I, I, mean, I would too. I had issues with it, though, and I was disappointed in it coming off of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Adaptation. I mean, those are two of like some of my favorite movies yeah, of all time. Of course. And then he starts directing, which, fine. Like, you know, I... I don't know that we can say like no, you just have to write great screenplays and let someone else direct. And them. he's not a bad director. But, he makes good. No, choices. but he. But you know, I think it's that. What's what Spike Jones? Spike Jones. So I don't think adaptation would be the movie it is if Kaufman directed it. The script would, is amazing, but there would be some more abstractness. There would be some more ambiguity if Kaufman directed that oh, for Spike sure. Jones is a genius and he was able to make that sort of a popcorn movie you know and, like and, and if you look at a, something with guns and sex and, and everything if you look at Eternal Sunshine you know what Gondry did to the the visuals to make exactly, it feel yep. like an actual memory like 
the way he does it, I don't think Kaufman would have been able to figure out. I mean, yes and no. I, I agree to the extent that Gondry does in Eternal Sunshine. I mean, that movie is, is brilliant uh, aesthetically and visually. There is a dreamy nature to the way he shoots. I'm thinking of ending things. Um, but not in the way but it that felt, Gondry does where things yeah, sort of disappear as, you know, you're It felt, felt sort of by accident, like... They're driving in the dark with the snow. You can't really see anything that's around them, so they feel very isolated. That's obviously intentional, but it didn't feel like a like a creative master like Gondry was, did in in Eternal Sunshine. So, again, I think having somebody to <laughs> I, I love this. I hope we can use this for the rest of uh, the podcast moving forward. To have someone to take Kaufman's vomit and put it back into the ham sandwich would have been so great for this movie. Yeah, and I don't know what director would have done well. I mean, Spike Jones, uh, Michelle Gondry, either one of them, maybe. I don't know, but I think so. I um, think they could have. I think they could have. You know, I think they they could have got us to bite that ham sandwich even after seeing the vomit. Would have made it look real yeah. good. Um. Let's talk. All right. Let's talk a little bit about performances. I'd love to, because I think both so, these people are great. We love Jesse Plemons. Yeah, he's in let's, my. Let's kick off him. He's in your acting troupe, yep. so um, I'm, I'm assuming Coffin called you. I don't know if he called you to ask you or if he just. I mean, this is a small movie, so maybe he was just like, "I'll sneak this in between you know no, my he, next two hundred million called, dollar movie with Jeremy." The, he called and then he started going off on some weird tangent, and you just oh, hung up. Oh, this is Kaufman. I just. I don't, I'm like, oh, just whatever. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, take Plemons. Take Plemons. You're, you're what, what do you What do you got? What do you got? A 16 day shoot. Take Plemons. Take some pills. <laughs> um, yeah, he's really good in this. No surprise. Uh, I think it's a little more interesting to talk about Jesse Buckley. Um, um, I didn't. I mean, I recognized her from Chernobyl, but yeah, she's but I didn't so really. I mean, and it's a small role in Chernobyl. Like, but God, she's so good in this movie. I think she's yeah. Like, she's so. She's simultaneously like adorable and like cute and like very like appealing in that way, but also is kind of a bore. <laughs> like Yeah, I think there's something magnetic about her that the totally. the camera totally loves and um I wouldn't have said that. Like obviously Chernobyl's a small thing and you don't go, Oh, that the lady who's pregnant, she you know, I can't wait to see her in more things, just she did that wasn't that type of role. Yeah. Um, but I remember her from that, you know, and it's like, why? Right. Because she does have that sort of magnetism. Um, and she's just good. And apparently she's Irish. I mean, she's just, yeah. yeah. And she does great like accent work in this. I mean, she changes her voice for, right. for different parts of this. And it's like so subtle. I'm, sh- I'm sure you loved that part. <laughs> I'm sure you loved what was going on there. Yeah. I was like, what is happening? Um, but I could, I definitely made a note, like change, her voice changes when she talks about women under the influence. Like I, I noticed it and I know it was a intentional, um, decision. I, I didn't think she well, just here, like lost it. Here's the thing that's interesting about that. And, and this is actually something that I think was done really well, regardless of whether or not you had any idea what was going on in this movie is these transitions that were made. So when she started talking in that accent, it was such a seamless transition. You noticed the difference, but I was like, wait a minute. Has she been talking in that accent the whole time? Right. And it's like when, like, her, when her clothes change and like, you don't really notice like, like huh? yeah. Yeah. 
and and that was done really effectively and a lot of that has to do with sort of like the angles and like how he changes angles very like abruptly but seamlessly so there was a lot of clever things that he did in this movie that i got to give him credit for uh just from a a director's standpoint but Mm -hmm. yeah uh i thought she was so good and and magnetic's a great word like you kind of can't take your eyes off her the one scene that i just was like where she like i totally was like perfect like she nailed it and because i knew this was coming they're in the parking lot and and she's fed up they're in the parking lot of the school at the end she's fed up she wants to go home she's pissed at 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 jake for going down this road and not just going home like all he wanted to do was throw away these ice creams and like it's, it's just like nonsensical reason to go do this and she's pissed off and she's had enough she's been saying the whole movie she's thinking of ending things with him she doesn't know why she's in this relationship that she's been in for like six or seven weeks and i know what's about to come right after this and that's that they start kissing before jake interrupts it and says somebody was watching us so i'm watching her piss them like how is she this going to transition into her kissing him like she seems done with him and she does it like it just works like she calms down and she like realizes the things she likes about him and they kiss and I was like, this is such a perfect, seamless transition by a good actress. And I, I just, it was a moment where I was like, how is somebody going to pull it off? And then I saw it happen. I said, oh, that's how. And I don't, that's just, See, credit I, is due for that. I, I mean, th- here's the problem with this movie is it's so nonsensical and so all over the place that I just kind of go with, there's nothing that's going <laughs> to Yeah, whatever happens off. next. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like she would have to do just something. I don't know. How do you even know? But. Um, uh, and that's the thing is like at that scene is when I was like the most excited because that like right after that when when he leaves to go f- talk to this person that saw them and then she follows him into the school that's that's when we get this transition where we learn this twist that that she is Jake and Jake is the janitor and I was like how is he going to do this this is going to be so great like there's been so much in this movie that's made no sense but I, I, I've seen where he's going and then he doesn't go there and i'm like what the fuck well let's play a game how could he have done it do they all morph together they all just walk in and then they just morph into the janitor i mean he does this thing where uh jesse buckley and jesse plemons are staring at each other in the hall and then these two other actors come in and start to ballet dance and the camera starts to pan and when it pans back jesse buckley is now gone that's how you do it. That's the transition somewhere in there. Instead, it, it goes into an extended ballet sequence that goes through the entire school. Then there's a pit bit with the animated pig that, and, and that that's the point where I was just like, he's, he's doing some he's other lost it. thing here. He's, he's lost <laughs> it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how there's so much to talk about with this movie, but I don't know how one recommends this movie, especially being as frustrated watching it as I was because I wanted I wanted that Kaufman experience that I've had in the past I was like hoping for it and 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 I I was like I'm gonna be even more amazed if somehow he pulls this off but um his vomit stayed vomit yeah um yeah also this may be bold and I don't even know if I truly believe this but I think this is some of the best I've seen Tony Collette um yeah she's great she's so good in this movie perfect casting too i mean who else plays that role honestly 
and I mean, there's like moments of hereditary in there. There's moments from the sixth sense, like, yeah. And, and she is such a, <laughs> she's such a chameleon, not in the, not in like the chameleon sense where like, Oh, she lost herself in the role in a chameleon sense. And like, she like changes what she looks like depending on the scenery, you know? And she does this literally in this movie. And I don't know if there's another actress that can pull that off. And David Thewlis does the same thing. And I really like him. He's great in this too. Um, and that's about it. I mean, there's those four actors that have any significant screen time. There's some girls that they run into at the ice cream shop. And then there's the janitor. But that's, you know, what, there's ten, nine, nine people in this movie. Um, I mean, what this movie did make me realize is I'm sure Charlie Kaufman had a horrible high school experience. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things that that Kaufman is, is still unpacking. Uh, through, from throughout his life through this movie so there's there's something <laughs> there's, uh, there's something interesting about things that Kaufman does he does and it's a, to a lesser extent in this movie the the best example and that I always bring up is with adaptation is he's he's hired to option is to write this this uh adaptation of an orchid the orchid thief which I haven't read but just for, knowing adaptation as well as I do and hearing interviews with them, it's basically a, it's a story about time and evolution. And, and it has some, some little pieces of, of characters, John LaRoche, uh, people who collect orchids, things like that. But there's like no narrative. So he has to figure out a way to do this, but he, you know, the whole movie, he doesn't want to make it normal, but ends up doing so. But the funniest piece is that he incorporates Susan Orlean, the author, and makes her a drug addict, a murderer, a sex addict, like just this awful person. And I've always been like, how does Susan Orlean feel about this movie? Of all those things, I think the thing that would make her feel the weirdest, because all those are obviously not true, right. but the part that's probably true is him jerking <laughs> off to her picture on the, on uh, the book jacket. On the book yeah. jacket. Yeah. <laughs> that almost certainly happened. That's probably true. Right. So I always wonder, I'm like, how does she feel about this? So in this movie, there's something, well, much, much smaller, something similar. And it's him making a movie within the movie, this shitty, horribly written movie that he throws a title card on that's directed by Robert Zemeckis. And supposedly he got permission from Zemeckis to do that. But I'm like, why? Like, this is so strange. Like, how does he do this? Like, why, why do that? Why? write this horrible like horribly written movie in the middle of his movie and then decide that it's written and directed by robert zemeckis like where are these things coming from in kaufman's brain yeah and it's not referential in like the brilliant way that we love tarantino for doing it but he could have said anyone too it's not like zemeckis has like it's not like zemeckis but it wouldn't have been as it wouldn't if he said Scorsese or Tarantino. Like it wouldn't. It would have been too on the nose. No, no, but, like Zemeckis is just famous enough. But like, Zemeckis also doesn't do romantic comedies. He's not known for that. It's not like his. Right, but I think there's only a certain number of directors that he could have put there to make that land. But the other thing is, like, it's not a joke, and like, that's not why it's there. So that's also confusing. Like, uh, there's all these things. There's so uh, much let's, in let's, this film. I just, mean, yeah, so just take, just put aside the the the, the whole movie. For so if a somebody's second. listening to this like, podcast and hasn't seen the movie, as confusing as this podcast is, the movie is yeah, even more confusing. That on ecstasy. So, all right, so let's let's try to figure this out because we've got the time to do it. 
I, I want people to watch this movie and I want people to be able to watch this movie without having read the book. I'm I'm not the type of person to be like, you got to read the book. That's not something. Honestly, I, do. I think it would help. Like if I, it would totally help. It would No, no. It would help if even somebody says they're all the same people know that going in, that would help the watch, the viewing of that. Of this <laughs> the other movie. funny thing about that is I'm, I'm thinking the whole time of Donald Coffin being like, they're all the same person. Isn't that fucked up? <laughs> <laughs> And the irony there, the irony there is Donald Kaufman in adaptation pitches his idea of these three characters in his movie all being the same person. And Charlie Kaufman pushes back and says, in the reality of this movie, if they're all the same person, there's no way to film that. How can you make that work? Well, he proves it here. There's clearly no way to film it. (laughs) The other thing is, there's no way to write this. Did you consider that? I mean... How, how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and, and working in a police station at the same time? Trick photography. Okay, that's not what I'm asking. Listen closely. What I'm asking is, in the reality of this movie, where there's only one character, right? Okay? How could you... What, what exactly would... I agree with mom. Very taut. Sybil meets, I don't know, Dress to Kill. Cool. I really like Dress to Kill. Until the third act denouement. That's not how it's pronounced. God, there's so many layers to he, this. He had to have realized that as he's making this movie. He had to have read this book and said, I'm making this movie, but I've, I've said so myself. There's no way to film these three characters all being the same person. But at the same time, Kaufman is the one to be able to do that. So that's why I was so frustrated that it didn't that it didn't go there. Right. But let's figure out how to get people to watch this movie. Because I know what's going to happen. It's on Netflix. It's advertised on Netflix. Everybody's going to watch the first half hour. And Netflix is going to say it's the most watched movie they've ever had. <laughs> but everybody stopped at 35 minutes or something. People aren't going to make it This is a long through. movie, too. It's two hours and 15 minutes. That's People another thing. It, it is too long. People aren't going to the uh, opening car ride. Because that opening car ride is like 20-something minutes where it's just two people dialogue. Um, that's true. I will say if you do get to this scene when they get to the house, there's some interesting elements there if you liked get out for example like you can grasp at some straws there like you can find some things that are interesting in that regard i mean i definitely thought it was going to lean towards sort of a horror film at that point yeah that don't go down into the basement they that whole thing i thought that's where this movie was kind of try to go and i think it does that intentionally i think there's of course yeah I i think it's trying to work in different genres is is from one well. scene and, to the next. Yeah, and and look, you you listen to the same podcast that I did talking about this movie where it suggested that part of the point of this movie is to frustrate the audience. I hate that idea. I don't think that's true. I don't think that should ever be the intention of a filmmaker, and I don't think that that's the intention of Kaufman. I don't think the idea is to frustrate you. I cuz I don't I don't see the logic in that. So no, I don't think he was trying to frustrate. The so audience. if that's not I, the, case. I, I think he gave the audience. Uh, I don't know if I want to say more credit than, because I I think it was his fault. That's it, saying more credit implies that's the audience's fault. But I think he, he thought he had 
enough there to maybe explain away uh, some of it, and it just wasn't. I, I think he kept taking away, taking away, taking away, and, and there wasn't enough for them to... He didn't leave the audience with enough, and that's going to frustrate the audience. I don't think it was intentional, but he just didn't leave the audience with enough. Right. Uh, so, performances aside, like, I know this was a hard two hours and 15 minutes for you. Yes. But back kind of to my opening question for you. As you're watching this movie, like, what were the moments where you were like, okay, I, I, like, what was, were there ever any moments that pulled you in, even if they were just individual moments that you couldn't picture yeah, leading to anything? I did like his stance on his, his conversations and uh, visuals on aging, I think. That was clearly a, a big motif and theme in this film. The idea of aging and regrets and just your body falling apart and thinking back on your past and what everything means. Like that's a big part of this film. And I was I was able to sort of grasp onto those parts of it. Um Yeah, and a lot of that's the stuff that takes place at the house with Tony Collette and David Thewlis, which I think is that's your second act. I think it's the most structured piece. It does start to get a little weird. Um, I was thinking about the Irishman a little bit in that regard. You know, that movie is, is sort of the same thing. It's looking back on, on your life and wondering how you got where you are and your regrets and like, and Tony Collette in particular, like she pulls off, pulls that off so well, like her, her like faux excitement and like this is like, she's so, there's so many moments where she's just like so excited that her son Jake is there. And so excited that he's brought a girl home and like so excited to talk about Jake. and like she's very nostalgic for for Jake as a as a kid. Right. But why does she and have like, to be crazy? Like where what what did that bring to the table? Like that sort of made it that like added that was to like horror the horror element, element, but it really didn't it didn't really add anything to the to what the movie was really about, which is sort of that aging element or that looking back at your parents element or like, are they good people? Like they, she, they made her crazy. They made her See, like that. And that to me was like hereditary. inserting her. Yeah, exactly. But that was me, him. That was to me was him inserting that as the memory of Jake's character. So putting him in the position of like, Oh, his mom was so he's like, overly enthusiastic whenever a girl got brought home he always she always wanted to pull out baby pictures or something like that but like that was insanity exactly but i think you know as time goes by that memory gets blurred turns into something else i think maybe that's what he was trying to do i agree i think it I mean, throws I, you I, off the scent and this movie exactly already and, throwing and, you off the scent and that was my next point like it would have just been it would have been so nice for him to have all these like quirky time manipulative elements, even like the dog, like constantly shaking, like frozen in time. Like that's just one memory. I remember the dog shaking, but nothing else about the dog like that works. But when you start to change the motives of the characters, seemingly, then you're taking us into a different direction. And like, that was my point. Like he has this mystery 
that and he's leading towards the conclusion of it but he stops it and he starts to play another mystery and none of them end up getting really resolved and and and, and also like why why does he have her why does he manifest her as his memory I mean, it's his. I'm assuming it's still his parents. No, no. Um, right. Uh, Lucy. Oh, Jesse Buckley. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I don't know. That's that's interesting. I don't even know that I was able to. And I think pull that, that from that. I think I think she is supposed to be. I think the story of how they met is real. Whether or not the relationship was real or not is another piece. So I think the character is real, and for some reason, in this memory, in this schizophrenic story that's being told this girlfriend that he had has manifested into himself i don't know again it, there's there's certainly a way to different ways to interpret the the ending of this book obviously you can sort of transition that into a way that you interpret this movie it's not as clear it's intentionally not as clear and I don't, it's frustrating it's it's really really frustrating and for me it was frustrating for a different reason um I was frustrated that he wasn't able to put it together the way that I thought he could. You were frustrated because you're just not given anything in this movie. You're you're given you're given very a little lot. to grasp onto. You're given a lot, but it doesn't. It's nothing in a, a substantial structure way where you can, you know, hold on to. It's like you you don't have, you know, you don't even have the. You're trying to build a building and you don't even have the scaffolding to get up to the next level. You're just you're just jumping up and hoping you can put the next brick on, but yeah. you can never, you can never get any higher or figure it out based on what the pieces you have. So that's, that's the frustration of it. And, and, and I think there's, are those few things that really throw you off the scent of what's trying to happen. And I think one being it, it, it being from uh, Lucy's perspective, I think that throws you way off right from the beginning. And then two, the horror aspect of it for see, for really no reason. Um, and the weirdness of the parents for really no reason. That throws you way off and onto something else. So yeah. unfortunately, as interesting as this movie is, and you've helped me understand it a little bit more, which actually I'm kind of grateful for. Um, ultimately, it was a very frustrating and meaningless watch if you yeah, can't and it's put the pieces hard together because like even with the pieces that i have like i don't know i'm gonna i don't think i'm gonna get a whole lot more out of this if i watch it again either and that's well you won't additionally I would, but i don't think you would but you would just get to where i am now right and that's not particularly satisfied either and, and you're um, not quite there so i and and it doesn't have it, it doesn't have the elements that really make me one want to watch it again other than just the potential of getting more out of it, but I just don't think I will. And that's that's frustrating on top of it. Final question. Uh, Kaufman has suggested that this is his swan song. Um, I think that's some insecurity talking because it's been hard for him to get movies made, which is understandable. Um, you know, he made... Well, I hope... Uh, he, well, that's my question, is neither one of us were huge fans of Synecdoche, New York. We both admit we need to see it again. This was a tough one. Um, he's gonna he's gonna direct anything he writes moving forward. I think that's become clear. 
you know, I'd, I'd love it if he was going to write something and Spike Jones was going to direct it, but I just don't think that's going to happen. I can't say, I will see it for sure if something else comes out. I'm, I, I, I can't say I'm excited for whatever's next for Kaufman. Now, he does have um, this movie out or coming supposedly someday, directed by Doug Lyman. Um, that that's just wrote. been, yeah, that he wrote, but it's been, it's been a disaster. It's been in production and delayed for years. Like it's, it's a supposedly just a, a really big disaster of a production. Um, it is called chaos walking and it's in post-production scheduled for 2021. Kaufman wrote it has Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. Um, now again, I, like I said, I will see his movies, but it's hard for me to get up for a Kaufman movie knowing that I'm not going to fucking know what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was really hoping because I mean, as everything else in 2020, it's not been a great movie year. And I'm like starting to, we're getting to that point where I'm like starting to think about yeah, my, season. my best of and, and what I've seen this year. And I was like, I, you know, I need something because I the really, list is thin. the yeah. list I mean, is we, very thin. I don't know. I mean, I, we haven't seen a lot of new movies. Um, we do well, have some things coming seen that like tenant would have been one that I, well, think we yeah, but I mean, there just hasn't been a lot of new movies available for us to exactly. see, you know? Um, I think it'll be a unique year for the fixies because we're going to, we're going to be talking probably about a lot of smaller movies that go straight to streaming. Um, you know, I know some theaters are opening. I'm not comfortable going to them. I don't think you guys are really up for that at this point either. So, you know, we haven't seen tenant. We've got Mank coming to Netflix. Um, yeah. And a few other significant movies coming to Netflix as well. Um, but then there's some big movies, I think like freedom land with Francis McDormand. I think that's going to theaters um so we'll see i mean it, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting how we handle the fixies this year hopefully we can see see plenty i mean chapin fortunately his daughter came a month early because otherwise it was, i think she was due october 8th that would have been right at the beginning of fixie season which is a really inconvenient time to have a baby as you know Mm, um, yeah. Well, you, actually, you guys... it did. It ended up working out kind of better for me. I ended up watching so much stuff when. Yeah, because you weren't working too. Yeah, when she slept. Um, it was hard to get to the theater too, which again, there's a whole other issue well, this that year with was, that. But that was the thing. But I got to the theater when I needed to. I mean, Mank is going to win every fixie. That's. I, I think we could just do. Make so that we'll call just now. not even do the fixies <laughs> this year. <laughs> we just did them just right yeah. now. I know it's a little less fanfare than normal, but. We were planning on going to Vegas, but instead it's oh. just you and me at the end of this podcast declaring yeah, the winner. What a disappointing. Oh, well, yeah. All right. Well, that will wrap things up for this Chapinless edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. We hope you enjoyed it more than Jeremy and I enjoyed. I am thinking of ending things. If you have seen this movie, if you have an interpretation or a thought or a take, we would love to hear from you at feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. You can check us out on Instagram. Um, yeah, but and also we do want to say congratulations to Chapin. Of course. Katie. We're very excited, we're excited that they to have had another, their baby girl. Um, Everyone seems to be Get Your doing Film well. Fix family. Um, Ridley Wright Hemingway has joined the world. Um, do you think she's seen this movie yet? Uh, no, probably not. She's probably starting with Ridley Scott movies. Of course, Alien, Gladiator. Blade Runner. Alien. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. I'm sure they watched those first. <laughs>
I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee. <laughs>